1: And welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is an exception. In fact, it, it's our first one to that. I bet you got an atheist on the other line with me here. Someone who's been uh, requested a number of times. And then I went to my Facebook group and said, So, um, how, how, how would you guys like this? 99% of you are on my Facebook page said Yes which is what Dan Brown calls a close vote, by the way. (laughs) So um, we are going to be talking about two common claims that we hear from atheists today. First, Jesus never even existed. And second, the Middle Ages was a time where Christianity ruled the world, and it was the Dark Ages, and science was outlawed or banned or not pursued at all, whichever one you want. It was anti-science. And to discuss that, I've actually brought on Tim O'Neill. He's an atheist, skeptic, and rationalist who is a subscribing member of the Atheist Foundation of Australia and a former state president of the Australian Skeptics. He's contributed to many atheism and skepticism for over the years and has a posting record as a rationalist that goes back to at least 1992. He has a bachelor's degree of honors in English and history and a research master's degree from the University of Tasmania with a specialization in historicist analysis of medieval literature. As a rationalist, he believes strongly that people should do all they can to put emotion, for thinking, and ideology aside when examining any subject and that they should acquaint themselves as thoroughly as possible with a relevant scholarship and take account of any consensus of experts in any field before taking a position. Which is why he began his blog in October 2015. After over 10 years of seeing supposed rationalists. Most of them with no background in or even knowledge of history, using patent pseudo-history as a basis for arguments against an attacks on religion. He felt someone needed to start correcting the popular misconception about history, which are rife among many vocal atheist activists. He also felt there needed to be some pushback by a feral unbeliever against several fringe theories and hopelessly outdated ideas, which have no credibility among professional scholars and specialists, but which seem to be accepted almost without question by many or even most anti-theistic atheists. History for atheists has grown out of these convictions. In the years since he began this blog, he has won a number of fans and supporters, but also gained a few detractors and hecklers. That's the nature of internet. tumble of being in if this is, and If you visit, if that's your first visit, he asks you try to put his assumptions, appropriate positions, and emotional preferences to the side, and look objectively at the evidence and arguments he presents. If we preach objectivity and dispassionate, well-informed master analysis to others, we need to be prepared to practice these things ourselves. Remember, it's usually only by discovering we have been mistaken about something that we can learn something new. Tim, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thanks, Nick. It, it's, what?
0: right. I was just about to say though that it's a very good introduction, but I suppose I would say that because I wrote it. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, you're a little bit biased there. I think. Yeah. Now, if True. my if my audience doesn't know much about you, how did you get to be doing what you're doing here?
0: well I suppose it, it it was pretty much what what you just you just said um, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I, I despite what you might read um, from some of my detractors I am an atheist mm-hmm. uh, and have been for my entire adult life so that's about 30 35 years so far mm-hmm. um, and and I, but I'm also very interested in history and one of the things I've noticed is that a great many people who um, uh, not just atheists, but are of the what I refer to as new atheists, so of the anti theistic and anti religion um, mm-hmm. variety of atheists. Well, the ones you hear about and hear from the most, um, they they tend to come from uh, a science background, um, a great many of them. Like to come the from new a atheist. Background. Yeah, that's right. You know, some people like Dawkins and and uh, and PZ Myers and various others, Jerry Coyne. Mm. Um, so they, they've kind of come to their atheism, and certainly come to their their, their sort of uh, um, anti-Christian activism from that background. Usually from some kind of, uh, of encounter with, with creationism. Mm. And, and they've moved from debunking creationism to, to debunking Christianity in general and then to debunking uh, religion. So what I find is that they, they don't have a very good grasp of history. Um, yet despite this, they, they make arguments against religion um, based on their rather poor grasp mm. of history. And this is usually based on a kind of a high school level popular culture uh, grasp of 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 uh, of the the past, which is um, pretty bad, because most people's understanding of history is fairly rudimentary and is and is riddled with some myths, and uh, and unfortunately, most people's grasp of the history of Christianity is extremely poor, and that includes many Christians. Mm-hmm. So so when you've got that combination of general ignorance about history. And uh, and prejudice against religion, um, and and uh, dare I say it, in many cases arrogance. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty deadly combination. And so, what i I've, I've found to my um, annoyance initially uh, was that whenever I participated on sort of forum that that forum online that were dominated by new atheists I just kept coming across people saying stuff about history that I knew was wrong Mm -hmm. now even though they were doing it Um, from a position of atheism, which I share, and also from a position of kind of anti-Christian activism, which um, frankly doesn't interest me greatly, Um, they they, they were were saying things that I just knew were historically wrong. And so I started to find myself correcting them Mm -hmm. in some detail. And, and often getting them pushing back and telling me that I was a revisionist and, and that even though what I was saying was mainstream historical uh, analysis. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they also found that I was repeating myself. So mm-hmm. I, it was the same stuff over and over again. It was the dark ages, the medieval period, the medieval church suppressing science, um, scientists being burned at the stake, uh, the burning of the great library of Alexandria by wicked Christians, you know, the murder of Hypatia of, of Alexandria by wicked Christians because she was a scientist. The murder of Giordano Bruno by wicked Christians because he was a scientist, uh, and of course the Galileo affair, and the other one that that uh, is fairly fairly prominent among these people is is a subscription to the Jesus myth thesis. Mm-hmm. So, so I found I was just tackling these top same topics over and over and over again, saying the same stuff. And uh, that got a bit boring, um, you know. I've, I've got a fairly busy life and a fairly, uh, a fairly active and successful career. So, uh, what I decided to do was start writing a blog, um, where I could actually write some quite long and fairly comprehensive articles on these topics, uh, so that I just had to say it once, and then from then on, whenever I came across those uh, those um, uh, arguments or errors. I would just be able to say, well, no, as I detail here, that's not true. So it was. It started as an exercise in saving myself time. Yes. Um, it, it's turned into, uh, I suppose, a, a bit more of a consuming hobby than, than I originally intended. Um, but it, it also has garnered a great deal of uh, – my blog has garnered a great deal of, of attention and some some high praise from, from very serious people, uh, Dame Avril Cameron, who is – uh, you know, literally the Grand Dame of of uh, British um, late Roman history mm-hmm. uh, sent me an email a couple of couple of months ago uh, saying that she thought my blog was fantastic. Uh, professor Tim Whitmarsh, who's a a, a a classics professor and an atheist who's written a history of atheism in the ancient world, is also a fan, and I've got a, a number of other um, uh, mm-hmm. scholars who, who who like my stuff, including many Christian scholars. Larry Hurtado yeah. uh, is is also a fan. Um, and, and of course, that last point is one that uh, that some of my uh, detractors seize upon. And the fact that I'm talking to you, Nick, will mm-hmm. almost certainly be used yeah. as as ammunition. Because one of the ways in which um, my some of my uh, my, my less fan like um, readers uh, try to dismiss me is by saying that I'm actually a, a non atheist at all. Uh, I'm actually a, a Christian or a crypto Christian. Um, in fact, here's a quote from uh, our mutual friend, Richard Carrier.
1: Uh, you um, mean the uh, unemployed, polyamorous, prominent internet blogger who's banned from Skepticon, Richard Carrier? Uh,
0: yeah, that's the guy. Yeah. <laughs> Doc, doctor, but let's be, let's be very clear. He's yeah. an Ivy League graduate with a mm-hmm. PhD from Columbia, which – which uh, I, I absolutely respect. He has yeah. excellent training and excellent qualifications, whatever else you can say about them. He, here's what he says about me. This is on a, a, a YouTube interview um, a few, few weeks ago. Mm. He says of me, I swear he's a crypto-Christian, that he's actually posing as an atheist, pretending to be a Christian. I think he means pretending to be an atheist. Um, because the stuff he writes sounds way too fawning on Christianity. <laughs> and um, anyway, so too much like Christian apologetics, really. Very, very similar, very similar. That was um, that was uh, his his comments on me. Uh, he, he also recently wrote a whole article uh, on me where he – He um, talks about how he he has dealt with the lies and slanders Mm. and tinfoil hat conspiracy of the pseudo-atheist shill for Christian triumphalism, (laughs) Tim (laughs) O'Neill. In the same article, he says that I lied 14 times. He calls me a liar no less than seven more times, and that's in addition to – I believe you guys pronounce it ass-crank hack, tinfoil hatter, crank, stupid, and delusionally insane. So he's not a fan. Um, but uh, then again, I've uh, given some fairly strong and quite detailed critiques of his stuff, which we might come back to. Mm-hmm. But, but this is one of the ways that they, they try and, uh, and dismiss what I say. What, what is distressing is that so many of these supposed rationalists – You know, my fellow rationalists and and fellow sceptics respond in this. Completely irrational way. I mean, anyone who reads my stuff can see that I'm not a Christian. Mm-hmm. Anyone who reads my stuff knows that I am very much uh, an atheist and a skeptic. I'm just consistent about it. You mm-hmm. know, I, I don't and, and and I don't believe in in um, accepting stuff about history, for example, or anything really, just because it it fits some kind of anti-Christian ideology. I think that mm-hmm. that's. That's a that's a form of weird fundamentalism and that's meant what, what we rationalists are meant to be against.
1: Yeah I, I've got a saying that you know many an atheist goes on to accept the existence of a historical Jesus and go, go on to lead meaningful and happy lives. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, it, it, it is that is strange, isn't it? Mm. Um, look, and th- this is the, the other thing. I think we need to be very clear on: um, the, it, there, there is no sort of complete correlation between, say, Jesus' mythicism and, and atheism, because the two things have got virtually nothing to do with each other. I mean, one is a position on the existence of God, and the other is is a position on the existence of a human being. Mm. Now, whether that human being was God is a separate theological yeah. question and christological question. But you know, I fully accept that there was a historical Jesus. Now, obviously, I, uh, I, I fully, sorry, I fully accept that it is most likely that there was a historical Jesus. I can't prove it, um, and you and I agree on that. We yeah. disagree, obviously, disagree on who who that guy was. Absolutely. And, Right? And, and disagree on mm-hmm. on uh, a great many, possibly most, of the claims made about him in the Gospels. But uh, that, that the, the, the two questions, whether or not God exists and whether or not Jesus exists, are two separate things. So virtually all of my friends are atheists. I mean, I live in Australia, which is a pretty secular um, and quite you know, generally religious sort of a place. So all my friends are atheists. None of them accept Jesus' mythicism. Mm-hmm. So I find mythicism seems to be much more prominent among those those anti-Christian activist mm-hmm. style of atheists. Yeah. It also does seem, and, I, and I'm not making any kind of um, uh, a, a comment here based on any kind of statistics, but it does seem to me that it is much more prominent among American atheists than among uh, atheists from other other countries. Yeah. I I suspect this is because um, to be an atheist in America you do have to have a fairly contrarian turn of mind Mm -hmm. because it's a very uh, Christian culture. Mm -hmm. Um, Secondly, I think it's also because uh, many atheists in in the United States come from a fundamentalist Christian background Mm -hmm. and and so swing from one extreme – you know, Jesus is Lord, to the other extreme, Jesus didn't exist because they they tend towards a kind of an absolutist, all or nothing kind of thinking. And I've heard fundamentalist Christian pastors say, you can't just believe bits of the Bible. It's either all true or it's not. None of it is true. Oh, gosh. (laughs) <laughs> so these guys seem to be taking that and then swinging it the other way and sort of saying, well, once I've had people say to me, well, if this bit in the Gospels isn't true, you know if if the two accounts of Jesus' infancy contradict each other and possibly aren't true and, and are really more theological statements, then then that means none of it is true. And, and they can't seem to grasp that that doesn't actually follow. Just because there are stories about someone that aren't actually historical doesn't mean everything about that person isn't historical. Just because we know that the story of George Washington chopping down the cherry tree and then saying, I cannot tell a lie is apocryphal and didn't actually happen, doesn't mean that George Washington didn't exist. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah. See, but the power- these guys – can. Yeah, these guys seem to only be able to think in black and white.
1: Yeah, to paraphrase the words of Jesus, that I often use about many atheists I meet online, it's these people are no reason with their lips, but their heads are far from it.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
1: So, so let's talk about Jesus here, Sam. In what he's, how, what he said. Do you mean one of the first things that come up is that where. If Jesus was such the awesome figure that he's seen in the gospels, don't you think other people would have talked about him?
0: Yeah. Um, so th- I think th- I think we've got two different questions there. One is. Is is Jesus the awesome figure that that is described in the Gospels, mm-hmm. and the other is then the other is did Jesus exist at all, mm-hmm. and what what tends to happen is is, is mythicists, uh, particularly of the more naive variety, I should point out that uh, people like Carrier, for example, don't use this argument. But but you come across this argument all the time. There should be contemporary references to Jesus if Jesus was this amazing guy. But what they do is they then make a jump from um, not not from that to therefore Jesus wasn't exactly the way he was described in the Gospels, but they jump from that to therefore Jesus didn't exist at all, which doesn't actually follow. So it could be that Jesus wasn't exactly uh, as he was described in the Gospels and, as I would believe, was simply a Jewish preacher preaching to some other peasants in a, in a fairly backwater part of a, of a backwater province in the eastern end of the Roman Empire – um, but but that doesn't therefore mean uh, that, that the fact that that guy didn't get mentioned in contemporary sources means that that guy didn't exist. We wouldn't actually expect someone like that to be mentioned in contemporary sources. Mm-hmm. And what I point out to people when who make this argument is um, it, it, the way you, you work out how attested someone should be is by looking at analogous figures. So a lot of people say, well, we know lots about people in the ancient world. Look at all these sources we have for Julius Caesar. Look at all these sources we have for 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 uh, the Emperor Augustus. We have nothing like that for Jesus, which is a patently st- – I would argue – I'd say to me that's a patently stupid argument.
1: It, it, of sounds course like we saying, it sounds like saying, for instance, I live near around Atlanta, so where well, we don't have as much information about the mayor of Atlanta as we do about President Trump. It's like, of course exactly.
0: not. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. that's right. and and so so what what we do is we look at who are the analogous figures um, for Jesus. and if we look at other early first century Jewish preachers, prophets, and messianic claimants of whom we have you know about five or six other examples, none of them, none of them are mentioned in any contemporary sources. All of them are mentioned in in sources written decades later, and virtually all of them. Are uh, known to us purely from one source, and that's Flavius Josephus's um, Antiquities. And Flavius Josephus mentions Jesus <laughs> twice. Um, one of those is obviously the so-called Testimony of Flaviana, which is uh, is dubious because we know it's been doctored um, at least in part, if not wholly, by Christians. But there's a second one that, that the mythicists just try very hard to make go away, but doesn't. And that's the second reference to uh, to Jesus in in um, Book Twenty. Of of that work, so so this argument that there should be references to Jesus um, uh, is more about the Jesus of the Gospels than it is about the historical Jesus that that I believe in. So when when people say, well, if he did these things, if he walked on water, if he raised people from the dead, if he rose from the dead himself, um, then then this should all be noted. Well, then, that's that's an argument that's really being made uh, more towards people like you, Nick, yeah. than to people like me. Yeah. But I would st- I would even go so far as to argue that that uh, it it could well be that um, he he may have done uh, even if he had done sorry even if he had done some miraculous stuff. Our sources are so scanty and and are so fragmentary that it, it's uh, it's actually it isn't guaranteed that even if he had done. Some of the things in the Gospels that that it would have been noted. If you look at the Gospels, most of the, the miracles are, are not done uh, in front of vast numbers of people. They're they're, yeah. they're usually done by in front of his followers, or in front of a very small number. There's a couple of exceptions to that.
1: Feeding of five thousand,
0: for instance. That, that's that's the obvious one. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's uh, so. so th- the other thing is that if we look at what the Gospels say about uh, about Jesus and how famous he was. Um, even in the Gospels, which I would argue are boosting and, and exaggerating his fame and impact, um, it's not actually—they're not actually making terribly impressive claims. Mark's Gospel, for example, says that he became greatly famous and well known throughout the whole of Galilee. Well, Galilee's tiny; you can walk across Galilee in a day. Um, Galilee is was an absolute backwater and. Uh, even as far as other Jews were concerned, let alone some aristocratic Roman or Greek Mm. writer sitting in Corinth or Rome. So the idea that this guy was greatly famous across the whole of Galilee, well, that's not much of a claim. So even if we take the Gospels at at face value um, they're not really claiming that he was incredibly famous at all they're, they're claiming that he was greatly famous in his own backyard which isn't very impressive
1: yeah i, I often think that i can picture a historian sitting in rome being told hey uh, there's a guy over in galilee who's a crucified preacher and he was claimed to be the messiah and resident from the dead next he's, he's not interested in it he's not going to bother investigating the claim this is and this
0: is the this is the argument that that they they make you know they, they try to make this argument from silence and so they say things like well Seneca uh, wrote about religion but Seneca didn't write about Jesus therefore Jesus didn't exist so well Seneca didn't write about absolutely every religion in the Roman Empire as uh, Seneca uh, also had had very little interest in in uh, in Jewish affairs in fact Romans generally had very inter- little interest in Jewish affairs they considered the Jews to be weird. Um Tacitus Tacitus wrote a, a passage about the Jews where he basically said that their religion was disgusting and strange. Uh, but on the whole, they just completely ignored the Jews, apart from when the Jews you know rose up against them and fought fought major wars against them, and then uh, they documented that a bit. But most even then, most of our most of our information about anyone Jewish in this period comes from two writers. Uh, One is Philo of Alexandria, who mainly wrote theology and and would occasionally mention uh, a couple of historical people from his time in passing. And the other is Josephus. Without Josephus, we would know virtually nothing about anyone in the first century, any Jewish person in the first century AD. Yeah,
1: and I think you've also pointed out that by this argument of no contemporary mention, whether that means exactly, that's still vague. We won't have reason to believe in say, the existence of Hannibal or Queen Boudicca or the German general Arminius.
0: Yeah, well, this is the this is one of the problems with this argument. If you apply it consistently, um, then it, it it becomes quite ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But what I find is the people who try to apply it aren't actually interested in history; they're just interested in debunking the idea of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So they so they don't care. But if you take take Hannibal, for example, uh, we have no. Contemporary um, accounts of of Hannibal, right? None. Now, this is one of the most famous people in the in the ancient world. Um, up, a great general up there with Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great mm-hmm. was was renowned throughout the the ancient world. Had a career that spanned the entire Mediterranean for decades, and yet we have just one reference to him that actually dates from his lifetime, and that's a fragmentary inscription. Uh, by uh, an epitaph, to, by the Roman general Fabius, who who uh, who um, managed to to score a few defeats on him in, in his campaign in, in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's the only this one fragmentary inscription is the only reference we have that actually uh, mentions Hannibal from his peer from his actual lifetime. Um, so so people often say to me, well well we do have. Stuff from uh, from around his time. Polybius wrote an account of of Hannibal's uh, uh, Hannibal's career, and Polybius was was a contemporary of Hannibal's. He he lived at the same time as Hannibal. Kind of. Polybius uh, was a teenager when Hannibal died, so their career overlaps, but he was writing about 40, depending on, on when you date his work, he was writing about 40 to 60 years after uh, Hannibal's death. So if we count that as contemporary, then we should count the Gospels as contemporary of Jesus because mm-hmm. there's roughly the same distance between the death of Jesus and, and the the first Gospels. Um, and if, if if we say that a source that mentions Hannibal is contemporary simply because uh, the life of the writer overlaps with the life of the person being described, even though the source itself was written much later, um, then then Paul is contemporary because Paul was alive when Jesus was alive. He just, mm-hmm. he just didn't, none of his writings that survive uh, actually overlap with Jesus' life. They're 20 years later. So they try and have their cake and eat it as well. They try and say, well, this stuff over here doesn't count. But this stuff over here, that's okay. And this stuff, that doesn't count, of course, is always the stuff to do with Jesus. So what I try and do is, you know, I'm a rationalist. Let's be consistent. You know, is there any contemporary reference to Jesus? No, there isn't. Would we expect there to be? No, we wouldn't. And do we have contemporary references to to uh, other to uh, similar people? No, we don't. We don't even have contemporary references to much more famous people. So this is a stupid yeah. argument. Mm-hmm. It, it's such a stupid argument that, as, as I mentioned, um, there are several pro- prominent mythicists who don't use it yeah. and Carrier, to his credit. He, he, he is very good at, at uh, boosting terrible arguments, but even he yeah. won't, won't touch this one. This one's crap.
1: yeah well, and yeah, I have to say, I think I've got your bluff on one of those claims that you made about Josephus being the only one who writes about these Messiah figures. Because, you know, David Fitzgerald, that like one of mine, has said there were scores of people writing <laughs> about all these messianic <laughs> figures and such. So yeah. obviously you're mistaken.
0: Yes, yes uh, my dear friend Dave Fitzgerald, one of Carrier's acolytes. Um, Yeah, well, Fitzgerald wrote a book uh, a few years ago called Nailed, um, uh, 10 Christian Myths That Show Jesus Never Existed At All. Uh, which he self-published um, about uh, it was eight years ago, back in 2010, and yeah, he 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 makes this argument. He, he claims that that there were you know we we should find these references to Jesus because there were scores of writers who, who even talked about quite minor figures, but didn't mention you know, minor messianic figures and didn't mention Jesus. Um, I wrote a review of that book on my previous blog. It was a book review blog called Armaria Magnum, and and I I. Um, Noted that that argument. and said this is garbage. There aren't scores of writers who write were writing about major, minor messiahs and and Miss Jesus. There are none. Um, so what's he talking about? Fitzgerald wrote a uh, a long and and rather snarky response to my um, to my review where he tried to to bolster this argument and uh, but, but, just completely failed. He, he, he The only way he was able to justify the fact that he didn't actually tell his readers who these scores were was that he he wrote a much larger manuscript and he had to edit it down. And so he didn't have room to mention these scores of writers, but even in responding to my criticism and in saying that, he still didn't tell us who they were. Mm-hmm. and he's been challenged by. Various people who have read my review and read my my responses to his critique, and uh, and and he's never been able to tell us who these scores are because they don't exist, uh, and, ba- and basically he 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 is in, he's incompetent. Uh, he made he made a, a stupid error, uh, but unlike many of these people, he, he can't admit a mistake and back down. Hmm. I I
1: think there's a recurring theme also. You see, people are like the Guy who wrote the book No Meek Messiah and such. I mean, you have Rimsberg's list where people go and they list all these people in history who said nothing about Jesus. And if you're uninformed, that list does look pretty impressive <laughs> until you start looking at what these people wrote about.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. That's that's that uh, was his name, Paulovich. I think is the guy who, yeah, who wrote so. that uh, wrote that book. Um, yeah, well, the 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 list that he that he talks about is, um, I suppose, the best way he could describe it is heavily padded, and it's padded with, uh, with with a whole lot of of well, basically, what he's done is taken absolutely every single writer uh, who who mentioned anyone or wrote anything in around about the first century, and uh, and then just says they didn't mention Jesus, therefore Jesus didn't exist, which is um, pretty pathetic. <laughs> Uh, yeah if you look at what some of those people write about I mean for example there was a uh, there was one of the guys who who was that he mentioned said should have mentioned Jesus um the only thing that that guy wrote was a book on gynecology um so <laughs> I, I suppose we could imagine a scenario in which that guy could have worked Jesus into a book about gynecology. He, but he I,
1: wanted to write about the virgin birth, which I do affirm.
0: But, well, that, that would kind of, yeah, true. <laughs>
1: there was another one that I really
0: liked. The only You he, he mentioned one writer that uh, um, a guy called uh, uh, Decimus Valerius Asiaticus. He said should have mentioned Jesus. The only writing we have from Decimus Valerius Asiaticus is a letter that he wrote to someone about a stolen pig. Um, again, I'm not sure why a letter about a stolen pig written at the other I heard other of right.
1: pigs that went over the cliff after the demoniacs. You should have talked about it. Maybe that was where his
0: pig went. I'm not Actually, I'm not absolutely clear where, clear where Decimus Valerius lived. I don't think it was anywhere near Galilee, so I, I think that one's unlikely. But, yeah, this is the, the level of stupidity that some of these people have to have to get to. Now, again, I should stress that you know, not all mythicists make arguments. Uh, arguments this dumb. Yeah. But the problem is, far too many of them do. And and the fact that they have to resort to such dumb arguments should be ringing a warning bell for anyone who calls themselves a skeptic.
1: Now, you, you talked about Paul giving contem- giving a contemporary source, but you know the thing is, Paul doesn't really say anything about the life of Jesus, does he? I mean, isn't that strange?
0: <laughs> yes, there, there's another, another one of those arguments. Um, this is this is one of the, the the central planks of the the form of mythicism because there are many variant forms of mythicism but the form that that most of uh, of of the of the atheist community or the new atheist community really prefers is they uh, they they like this idea that is Uh, that was originally conceived of by a guy called Earl Doherty, who's Mm -hmm. another self-published amateur, but has since been picked up and championed and expanded by uh, our friend uh, Richard Carrier. And that's this idea that there was a a proto-Christianity that didn't believe in a historical Jesus. Uh, It believed in a purely celestial Jesus who descended from the upper heavens, the seventh heaven, down to the lower heavens but not to earth and was crucified and died and rose from the dead there and then ascended back into the upper heavens. This early form of proto-Christianity that believed in a non-historical, non-earthly Jesus then somehow gave rise to... Uh, the, the form that, of Christianity that we know today, which, which believes in the historical Jesus, by writing historicized versions of this celestial Jesus story, which is set on earth. Now, there's all kinds of problems with this idea, but one of the big ones is that we have absolutely no overt uh, description of, of any Christians who believe any, anything like this. Uh, we have no, no texts by this supposed celestial Jesus form of Christianity, we have no references to any text by it. Uh, we have no, um, uh, we have no account of this idea in any of the extensive anti-heretical literature that we have from the first three or four centuries of Christianity that were keen to to catalogue every variant form of, of early Christianity that they regarded as heretical. And yet, for some reason, seem to completely miss this one, uh, which, which supposedly existed, and not only supposedly existed, but which also would have had a legitimate and an accurate claim to being the original form of Christianity. Yet here were these critics of of heresies writing about many heresies that didn't even exist, you know, still exist in the time that they were writing, but still felt they had to had to account for them and debunk them. Yet they they completely missed this one. This doesn't make any sense. Uh, ditto, we also don't have any references to this early you know, celestial proto-form of Christianity that supposedly existed in any of the arguments that we know of from pagans and Jews that were being made against Christianity and about and, uh, which we have books um, by Christians written in response. This would have been a killer argument for someone like Trifo mm-hmm. or, or Celsus. You know, what about the you claim this stuff about your Messiah? What about these other Christians over here, or what about these other Christians um, uh, a few centuries ago who didn't even believe that he existed on Earth at all? How do you account for that? That would have been a good argument, yet we don't find it being used. So the the problem for mythicism of this form is that there's basically an evidential black hole at the centre of their thesis. There is no evidence for the form of Christianity on which their entire argument depends. So what do they do? What they have to do is they have to take the some of the texts that we do have and reinterpret them so that they can claim that they were actually uh, being being written by people who believed in this celestial Jesus form of Christianity. And so one of the things they do is they take the letters of Paul and they say Paul doesn't say anything, as you just said, doesn't say anything about a historical Jesus. Therefore, Paul didn't believe in a historical Jesus. He believes in a purely celestial Jesus. So there's our evidence that this purely celestial Jesus, this original form of Christianity, uh, actually actually did exist. The problem with this argument is that Paul uh, did refer to Jesus as a earthly human being. So he says that he was born as a human um, from a human mother and born a Jew. That's in Galatians four four. He, he says that he has a human nature and was a descendant of King David in Romans 1 3. He says that he was a descendant of Abraham in Galatians 3.16, and that he was a descendant of the Israelites generally in Romans 9, 4-5. He says he was a descendant of Jesse, Romans 1512. He talks about teachings that Jesus made during his earthly ministry that, on divorce, uh, 1 Corinthians 7.10, on preachers, 1 Corinthians 9.14, and on the coming apocalypse, that's 1 Thessalonians 4.15. He says that he was executed by uh, earthly rulers, 1 Corinthians 2.8, that he was crucified. There's about five references to that. But For example, 1 Corinthians 1.23, 2.2, 2.8, and so on, and that he died and was buried, 1 Corinthians 15.3-4. And then he says that he had an earthly physical brother called James, who Paul himself had met, Galatians 1.19. So it's extremely difficult for mythicists to try to sustain this idea that the guy who wrote all that didn't believe that Jesus was a human being, didn't believe that Jesus was on earth, and didn't believe that, that, uh, that Jesus had a, had a brother because Paul met his brother. But obviously the mythicists have arguments that, that try to explain all that, but they're terrible arguments.
1: As Bart Ehrman says, if Jesus never existed, his brother would probably know it. That's right.
0: because Bart Ehrman is uh, is a bad man, according to the mythicists, they hate him mm-hmm. uh, because uh, because he he doesn't he doesn't buy their garbage. So yeah, uh, but yes, yeah, so Bart makes a very good point. I, I've written a, a fairly detailed argument on the the reference to uh, James um, and Paul meeting, yeah. because the the thing about that one is. Um, it's not like Paul is saying I'm great because I met the brother of, of the Lord. Uh, in fact, he has to kind of admit that he met James, and because because it actually kind of undercuts the argument that he's making in in the first chapter of Galatians. So, for for those who who, who maybe haven't read Galatians recently, um, he's writing to the Galatians to say. Don't listen to those guys from Jerusalem who are telling you that I'm some kind of subordinate, second rank apostle, and so you don't have to pay any attention to what I'm saying. Uh, I am i got my teaching directly from Revelation from Jesus and uh, from the risen Lord. And, and I didn't get it from any of those guys. But then he has to say, well, yeah, but after I'd, I'd converted to Christianity, I did go to Jerusalem, but I didn't talk to any of those guys. And then he has to say, well, yeah, I actually, I did talk to Cephas, that's Peter, and to James, the brother of the Lord. But apart from that, I didn't talk to any of those guys. So so the admission that he met Peter and that he met James, Jesus's brother, is is a, is a reluctant one. So it's not like he's, he's he's making this up. So one of the ways the mythicists try to to dismiss this is say, well, it, he doesn't mean brother literally, and and point out correctly that uh, that Paul does often use the word adelphos, um, brother, in a figurative way to refer to um, other other Christian believers. The problem is that the the uh, relevant phrase that we're talking about here is is quite specific and that's um brother of the lord and there are actually two places where he uses the phrase brother of the lord and one of those is here in galatians 119 referring to james and the other is in uh, is in first corinthians where he talks about the brothers of the lord
1: Chapter nine. And
0: that's the one yeah first corinthians 9 3 to 6. So the problem is that that this specific phrase seems to have a very specific meaning, and in both these cases, in both First Corinthians nine and in in Galatians one nineteen, he mentions this brother or these brothers of the Lord alongside other Christians. So so Peter appears in both passages. So obviously Peter is not in the same category as this brother of the lord in in galatians or these brothers of the lord in first uh, first corinthians so so there has to be a subcategory of believers uh, in in some sense that the, that is encapsulated by this phrase, brother or brothers of the Lord. So this is where mythicists really start to tie themselves in knots because they can't deny that. So they have to come up with a way in which there is a subcategory of believers who who uh, who can be called brothers of the Lord, but who aren't Jesus' siblings. And and the arguments that they use are convoluted in the extreme. And, and get cut to pieces by Occam's razor. All you need to do is look at the evidence. The Gospels talk about Jesus having brothers. One of those brothers is called James. The book of Acts depicts Jesus, um, after, after Jesus' ascension into heaven, the brothers being among the believers in uh, in Jerusalem. And then later in Acts, there's a guy called James who's sitting alongside Peter as one of the leaders of the Jesus community in Jerusalem. Then we've got centuries of tradition that James was, effect was the first bishop, the first overseer of the ecclesia in of the of the assembly in uh, the church in in Jerusalem. So all the evidence lines up that the guy that that Paul is talking about is Jesus's brother, and you can't have a brother if you don't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I'm summarising a lot of argument, and and you know the mythicists have, of course, very detailed um, counter arguments, detailed convoluted and they basically fail. So if anyone wants to have a, have a read through uh, my, my article uh, in my series on Jesus' mythicism, is, is called Jesus' Mythicism 2, James, the Brother of the Lord. It's long, as all my articles are, but uh, if you want a comprehensive debunking of, of the mythicist claims about this, um, that's, that's what you'll be able to find. Of course, all the other claims that they make about um, Paul's references to Jesus that seem to be Uh, references to an earthly Jesus, are equally convoluted and equally unsuccessful. So let's take the the one in Romans where he talks about uh, Jesus being a descendant of King David. That's that's, that's pretty hard to to get away from. You can't be a descendant of King David unless you're a human being. I mean, can you think of any way in which Paul could say um, he is – Descended from the seed is the actual the actual um, word, sperma uh, of David. That, that doesn't mean that he was a human being who was descended from David. He even says according to the flesh. So he's saying in his human aspect, you know, katasaka, according to the flesh, in his human aspect, he's a descendant of King David. The text seems absolutely clear. That's how pretty much everybody... Christians, non-Christians translates that that passage. Can you can you think of any way in which it could mean anything else?
1: Sadly, the only way I can is because I've actually read Richard Carrier's book on the yep. historicity of Jesus, where he talks about like, like the heavenly sperm bank or something. Ah, yes,
0: and this is and this is the one. I, I mean, sometimes I struggle to find um, examples to show people how stupid. Some of the arguments can be so. This is my go-to one because it is so patently hopeless. Um, so yeah, what he what he says is, um, I won't go into into it in, in great detail. I could, and I'm going to be writing a, a an article about this um, in the future. But effectively, he says that the the key word genomenu, um, is doesn't doesn't mean um, to come into being. So the key word there is you know he he, he came into being. Um, from the seed of David according to the flesh. That's the, that's the, um, uh, the uh, literal translation of, of the passage in Romans 1, 3. So he says the genomenu doesn't mean um, came into being, which is the, the primary meaning of, of the relevant verb, inamae. um He says it means manufactured. So he says that he was manufactured from the seed of David. Now the, his argument for uh, for it being meaning manufactured is is fairly convoluted, but he he goes to 1 Corinthians fifteen forty five, where Paul says that Adam became the first man, and there we find another uh, form of the of the same verb, you know, So there we find enegeto, uh, sorry, egeneto. Uh, which is the aorist indicative third third person singular of the same verb. So he's saying, well, he became the first man. Uh, if if Adam became the first man, how was Adam born? Well, he wasn't born, says Carrier. He was made. He was made out of out of dust. He was manufactured. So this means, according to Carrier, that uh, that this verb can actually mean not come into being, which is its primary meaning, but can also mean manufactured. Now, this is despite the fact that uh, I can't find this verb being used to mean manufactured anywhere in the entire corpus of, of Greek literature. I may have missed something, but I can't find that anywhere. So it, the whole argument that it means manufactured you know, it depends on this, on this passage. Um, from from Paul, where he talks about Adam becoming or, or being made as the first man. Problem: um, Paul in that passage about Adam is referring to to Genesis two seven. And if we look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of Genesis two seven, which Paul would have been familiar with, um, what it says is, "And God shaped the man from from dust uh, taken from the earth, and He breathed into his face, and Adam became." A living a man with a living soul. The, the, the problem here is that yes, there is a form of the verb kinomai, uh in that passage. It's the form. It's the bit where he says, and he became a man. The bit about him shaping um, Adam out of out of dust doesn't use that verb. It uses a completely different verb, plasso, which means to form. So so yes. Uh, Paul in 1 in Corinthians 15.45 is saying that, that, uh, that Adam became the first man. He became the first man when he moved, made a transition from one state, uh, inanimate object, to another state, living, breathing human. Mm-hmm. And he's saying about Jesus that he made a transition from one state, celestial being, to another state, uh, a human according to the flesh – and a descendant of King David. So, ginawa in this, in this particular passage in, uh, in Romans 1-3 does not mean manufactured. It means what it says. <laughs> he came into being in human form, according to the flesh, katasaka, uh, as as, a, as of the seed of David. What Carrier then does is he, he homes in on that word seed, which in Greek is sperma, um, or spermatos, so that's that's a form of of uh, of, of the word sperma, uh, meaning seed. If we look at how seed is used in the Old Testament, again, turning to the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, um, we, we find that it gets used in a variety of ways. And uh, what Carrier does is he he looks at 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14, and he said, which says, um, and and it will, uh, it will, when your days are over and, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, you know, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is God speaking to David through the prophet Samuel. And, uh, and what Carrier argues is, well, well, obviously, this is referring to Solomon, the the seed of of his own of his own flesh and blood, who who will build a house for my name. That's David's son Solomon. But uh, Carrier says this could be a pesher, referring to the Messiah. Now, um, for those who aren't aware, a pesher is a uh, is a, a text taken from the scriptures which has one meaning in in its context, but which can be which has which can be given. A, another meaning out of that context. So he's arguing that that what Paul is doing is taking this reference in Second Samuel, and uh, and making it into a pesha about the coming Messiah. And so what he's, he he argues is that when Paul says in, in uh, Romans one three that he was uh, manufactured from the seed of David, what what he's actually doing is is he's referring to the idea that um, that God took some actual semen from David and took it and put it in a, uh, a sperm bank in the sky, a cosmic sperm bank. This is, um, he carries exact words. It would not be unimaginable, he writes on page 576 of his book on the historicity of Jesus, that God could maintain a cosmic sperm bank. So what he's doing is he's taking the word uh, spermatos, um, absolutely literally, it's not referring figuratively to the seed, therefore the descent of David, it's referring to his actual semen. Uh, he's take, He's saying that, that Paul is referring to an idea that God took physical semen from the testicles of David and kept it in the sky and then manufactured a physical Jesus in the heavens out of that semen. Does that sound plausible to you, Nick?
1: Not at all. I mean... If Sarah was, it's not in, it, that God couldn't do this, well, yeah, you know, and God could make it, that I could jump off of a third story here in my apartment. And I could fly. I, excuse <laughs> me, I'm not going to test that theory. Yeah. Um,
0: so the, the 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 problem. I mean, I've already gone through the problem with the with the the fact that um, that the the, 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 the genomenu doesn't mean manufactured. There's a further problem in this passage, and with Carrier's fanciful interpretation, in that uh, in that the, that spermatos can refer to semen. If we look at the uses of it in uh, in the Old Testament translation in the Septuagint, it can refer to semen. And so in those passages in Leviticus about that that about uh, purity laws and about you know mm. discharges during the night and all that stuff making you impure, that's that's the word that gets used. It, it, it can be used quite literally to refer to uh, seeds of plants or nuts and seeds of plants that, that can grow into a plant or a tree. But if we look at about 75% of the usages in the Septuagint, what we actually find is that it is usually used figuratively to refer to uh, descent or descendants. So it's it's a figurative term meaning not not literally see, but I am of the the seed of me you and know, my father Brian. Um, uh, I I am his descendant, right? Okay. Um, and that seems to be what Paul is saying here. So Paul is not saying he was manufactured out of a uh, out of semen kept in a cosmic sp- bank in the sky. He's saying Jesus was he came into being um uh, in according to the flesh uh, as a descendant of David. In other words, he's, he was, in his human aspect, Paul believed he had a heavenly pre-existence. In his human aspect, he he was a descendant of, of a human king. He was a human being. Um, Carrier's, the problem with Carrier's argument, apart from the linguistics, is that there is no reference anywhere, nowhere else in Paul's writings, nowhere else in any writings from the period, nowhere else in any early Christian writings, nowhere else in any Jewish writings of the time or before – to, to this cosmic sperm bank idea, it it comes purely from his incredibly fertile imagination. This is the level of stupid argument that mythicism has to descend to when you get down into the the details of the of the evidence, and this is why Occam's razor slices it to pieces. No one I know who I've taken through this argument has been able to say, yeah, Carrier's interpretation sounds more likely to me. Yet Carrier, within the space of a page, goes from saying, well, maybe this is what Paul is saying. That's on page 576. A page Mm -hmm. later, he says, the notion of a cosmic sperm bank is so easily read out of the scripture and is all but required by the outcome of subsequent history that it is not an improbable assumption, full stop. That's page 77. So in the space of a page, it goes from, oh, here's a way I can tie myself in knots to interpret this, this passage in this highly uh, speculative way to it's not improbable. In fact, he's since written a, a a blog article about this argument saying it is the most likely way that, that this passage should be read. Note that no one, no one, other than Carrier reads this passage and has ever read this passage in this bizarre way. This, ladies and gentlemen, is mythicism. And this is why I, as an atheist, a skeptic, uh, a complete non-Christian, just look at it and laugh. It's garbage.
1: Yeah, but let's talk a little bit also about Josephus since you mentioned him. I mean, the second one, it's usually very difficult to come by, but you know, the first one. Some people say, well, this is obviously a total forgery and this is what all the scholars of Josephus know.
0: Yeah. Well, the, the there is a reason, um, I, I tend not to put a lot of weight on the first reference to, to Jesus in Josephus, the so-called testimonium flavianum, yeah. uh, which is in, which is in book 18. Um, and that's that, uh, that a, a, Credible and solid case can be made that it is a wholesale interpolation. So this is the the one that that says uh, around about this time there was a man. If indeed, he could be called a man uh, called Jesus, and he was the Messiah, and his you know, he, he was crucified, and that his followers saw him again on the third day, and and the Christians, uh, the, the the sect of Christians that, that are named after him exist down to this day. Now, a credible case can be made that this is a wholesale interpolation because uh, there's no way that Josephus said he was the Messiah, he right. was the Christ. There's no way that Josephus said uh, that his followers saw him on the third day. In fact, even the phrase the third day doesn't doesn't even make sense for a non-Christian to, to be talking about. Well, what does he mean the third day, three days later? Three, you know, what, what does that refer to? It, it's unlikely, though possible— that uh, that Josephus believed that Jesus was a doer of wonderful wondrous works, um, though he does say the w- word he uses there is paradoxa, which means works which are difficult to interpret. And he also talks about other people um, doing miracles, other people that he did believe uh, did miracles using the same term. So there, are, But there are certainly bits in this passage which are clearly not written by Josephus and this passage has obviously, and all scholars, Christian, non-Christian, atheist, Jewish, agree that, that, that those two elements, he was a messiah and they saw him on the third day, have been added later. So, a, So a credible argument can be made, given that, a credible argument can be made that the whole passage is an interpolation and there are good reasons. I don't find them absolutely convincing but there are good reasons to think that that may be the case. It doesn't get quoted before about the fourth century um, and there's, there's uh, stylistic elements in it and, and linguistic elements in it which are not Josephan. But uh, a credible argument can also be made that it is not a wholesale interpolation, that those elements I just mentioned have been indeed been added. But they were added to an original reference to Jesus. And uh, there are strong arguments made by Steve Mason and, and other Josephan scholars that there are elements in this passage which are actually distinctively Josephan and are not found in, um, in pre-fourth century Christian writings. So a, a credible argument can also be made that it is partially authentic and has simply been added to. And that's actually the position held by the majority of Joseph and scholars, many of whom are Jews, by the way, so it's not like they're, they're just trying to prop up the existence of Jesus. Um, but I tend to avoid the Book 18 reference as, as any kind of evidence because I think it's a moot point. I think uh, 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 while, while a strong case can be made for wholesale interpolation, uh, I, don't, uh, I don't think that's actually true. I'm more inclined towards the partial authenticity um, side of the argument. But I, I, th- I think it, I think it's just too uncertain to really put too much emphasis on it. Mythicists, of course, um, <laughs> say that it's a wholesale interpolation, and I regularly come across uh, mythicists online who just say it's been proven that it's a fake. Well, that's not true. In fact, the majority of scholars think that it's partially authentic. But I, I tend to avoid that one altogether. Um, I'm happy to move on to the other one, but it, anything else you want to kind of say about the, the book, the Testimonium, the book yeah, 18?
1: Let's move on to the other one.
0: Okay, this is why I put much more emphasis on the book 20 um, reference to Jesus. It's the book 2200 um, reference. So in, in uh, book 20, uh, Josephus is not talking about Jesus at all. He's talking about uh, the uh, a political event um, that happened in his uh, – his lifetime, he was about twenty-five or twenty-six at the time, and he was living in Jerusalem, or had, and and possibly had just come back from his first diplomatic mission to Rome, where he was, as a as a young aristocratic Jew of a priestly family, was sent on behalf of the Jewish priesthood to uh, on an embassy to the Roman Senate, and he tells us that around about this time, the uh, the high priest Hanan ben Hanan or Ananus, um, uh, deposed uh, was deposed because he he was he was uh, had, had uh, performed some uh, illegal executions so the the Roman um, uh, the Roman prefect had died in office and uh, and while he was still uh, waiting for a replacement, the high priest decided to execute some people uh, which was against the way things were meant to be he then got um, deposed as a result and replaced as a high priest. But one of the people that, uh, that Hanan executed was, as, um, as Josephus puts it, uh, was the brother of that Jesus who was called Messiah named James. Um, this seems to pretty much everyone to be a pretty clear reference to guess who. Uh, now, the mythicists really have to work very hard to to explain this one away, because here we have James again uh, being referenced. He's being referenced by a younger contemporary who was in Jerusalem at the time, and who was almost certainly fairly closely uh, following the the events because he was a member of the priestly family himself. So this would be like a the son of a young Republican, uh, the young son of a Republican senator. Um, uh, remembering the, uh, the the resignation of Richard Nixon you know, it's not something that you would forget if it happened in your early 20s um, and he mentions in passing that this James who was executed was uh, was the, the brother of that Jesus who was called Messiah And it's also interesting that he he uses that phrase who was called Messiah Legomeno christu because he's not saying who was the Messiah he's just saying he was called the Messiah uh, and, and he's just identifying Jesus by what he was called. He's not claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. And we know that Jesus was called Messiah because that's the whole reason um, you guys are called Christians. <laughs> Christos uh, is the is the Greek form of that word, Messiah. So this one is tough for, um, for, the, uh, for the mythicists to try and, and get rid of. One of the ways they try and get rid of is the way they always do and say so it's a wholesale interpolation. Um, that's a pretty tough sell, though, because it's not like – this is like the, the um, Book 18 reference where this reference has a clear – where that reference has a clear apologetic purpose, at least in part. This one doesn't seem to have any apologetic purpose at all. It, it just mentions Jesus in passing. So the idea that a, that a Christian – later Christian scribe would invent this whole story, quite a convoluted story, just to slip in one reference – to Jesus by by reference to his brother in passing, that that doesn't pass the sniff test. So that that argument really doesn't hold up. So what they try and do is this. Later in the passage, uh, Josephus says that when Anan was deposed, he was replaced by another guy and that guy was called Jesus ben Ananus, sorry, Jesus ben Damnaeus. And so they say, ah, right, well, the Jesus at the beginning of the passage, that Jesus who was called Messiah, and the Jesus at the end of the passage, uh, that Jesus son of Damnaeus, they're the same guy. So what Josephus is saying, they argue, is um, Jones was executed by Hanan Uh, And James was the son, was the brother of of Jesus who was called Messiah, and he was later replaced. And then when Hanan was deposed, he was later replaced by Jesus, son of Damnaeus. That's the brother of the James that was executed. Problem with this, first of all, um, if that were the case, that would actually make a pretty good story but it's not what Josephus says. It's a bit strange that Josephus doesn't say, oh, and the guy that replaced him was the brother of the fellow that he had he'd executed, because that that would be a pretty good story. Um, but he doesn't say that. The second problem, much more important and significant problem with that argument, is that uh, I've gone through the works of Josephus very carefully, because this is the kind of stuff I do, Nick, mm. and I looked very carefully at um, the way in which Josephus uses these identifying appellations. So he uses these identifiers to differentiate between uh, different people who have the same first name. And the reason I, I did that is that Josephus has to do this a lot because a great many Jews have the same first names. There's about 12 names that were used for Jewish men in the in the first century AD. And so there's a hell of a lot of Simeons, a hell of a lot of Jacobs or Jameses. There's a hell of a lot of Jesus or Yeshuas. There's a hell of a lot of um, you know of, of the same names being used. And so Josephus regularly has to talk about Simeon, the son of uh, of, of uh, Yeshua or Simeon, the son of Jesus or, um, uh, or or Judas from Gamala. So he has to use gentilics where they were from, family relationships, brother of, the son of. Uh, or um, Cognumon, um so you know, who who was called such and such. And so yes, he used these these identifiers quite a bit because of the all these common names. What I found when I did that analysis was that nowhere in any of his works does he refer to someone by one appellation or one identifier uh, at the in in one part of the passage and then later in the same passage referred to him by um, a, a, a different identifier for the fairly obvious reason that that would be incredibly confusing. It would make it look as though he's talking about two different people. And the whole point of him using these identifiers is to, is to help his readers understand which Jesus he's talking about. So what he's doing in this passage is, is he's actually differentiating between the two guys called Jesus, which was about the sixth most common um, Jewish men's name of the time. So the first one he calls Jesus, who was called Messiah. And then later, to make it clear that this was a different Jesus, he calls him Jesus, son of Damnaeus. So this argument doesn't work. Oh, enter our friend Carrier. Carrier has another argument, of course. And uh, in Carrier's version of, of, the, of, the, uh, of, the, of this argument, he's saying that they are the same Jesus. But he says that the words, the key words, uh, legomeno Christu, who was called Messiah, have been added later. So originally the text didn't have that, and and that it was originally written as a marginal note, um, in in the uh, by a later scribe in the in the the margins of the of the text, and then someone else came along, saw that marginal note, thought it was a correction, and added it into the text. So already he's he's piling suppositions on suppositions. Um, so what he says is that uh, the the text originally just called him Jesus. So he um, James the brother of Jesus. Was the guy who was executed, and then later on he gets referred to as uh, as um, uh, Jesus, uh, son of Damnaeus. So That identifies which Jesus we're talking about. Problem, again, the analysis that I showed uh, that I did showed that that never happens. So he he never Josephus never refers to someone simply by their name when he introduces them, and then by their name with an identifier later. He always does it the other way around because obviously when he's introducing someone, he wants to explain which person he's talking about. So in this passage, if that was what he was doing, Josephus, if he followed his consistent pattern, and I looked through all of his works, he would say that he executed James, the brother of Jesus, son of Damnaeus, and then later on, if he referred to him again, Mm -hmm. he would refer to him simply as Jesus. Carrier tries a, a second way, to, to explain this passage, he argues that, uh, that actually Jesus, son of Damnaeus, was referred to as Jesus, son of Damnaeus in both places in the passage, and that the first one was the, was doctored so that the son of Damnaeus part was taken out and this marginal note, who was called Messiah, was put in. And then later on, he's, he's simply referred to as Jesus, son of Damnaeus. This would mean that he was called Jesus, son of Damnaeus twice in the same passage, problem, again, my analysis shows that nowhere in, in Josephus' work, does he do this? He doesn't refer to people using the identifier the second time that he mentions them in the same passage. He uses the identifier when he introduces them, and then uh, having done that and identified which Jesus he's talking about or which Simeon he's talking about, he just uses their first name. until Unless, of course, he introduces a new character with the same name, and then he uses a, a different identifier for them and uses the identifier again to differentiate. So this is complicated, I, I understand. But um, this is what you have to do in order to unpick the arguments of, of mythicists. And what you find is when you do this kind of analysis, their arguments fall apart. Carrier is a guy who normally when someone uh, critiques his work with something like what I've just explained, will respond immediately with, with a vast wall of, of text on his blog. Um, I wrote this two years ago. Carrier only responded, I think he finally got around to responding uh, a couple of months ago simply because people kept saying, when are you going to respond to Tim O'Neill's argument about Jesus and James? And usually you don't need to ask Richard Carrier when he's going to respond to a critic. Usually he's he's right in there. Um, so he, he obviously had a bit of a problem responding to this argument. And I won't bore you with the details, but if you go and read his response, it's pathetic. He hasn't even uh, – he, he doesn't seem to have even understood my argument, or, or he's misrepresenting it, one of the two um, and that's, that's the article I was referring to before where he calls me a, you know, a tinfoil hatter and a liar 17 times and uh, the, the, guy, the guy seems to be a little bit rattled by, by this argument because he knows I'm right, he knows, he, he knows his, his, his argument fails but he's a narcissist and he can't admit that he's wrong.
1: Back to mind when you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. We got Tim O'Neill here, an atheist, talking to us about the historicity of Jesus, and we're going to be talking about science and the Middle Ages. But if you're here next week, we're going to have Ross Hickling on, and yes, he's going after Carrier too. He's written, he did his dissertation on Carrier and Carrier's arguments against the resurrection and why he thinks they fail. So if you're interested in more of this, come back next week. But now let's get back to Tim O'Neill here. And now, Round maybe like the fourth century or so, there's fourth or fifth, a beacon of knowledge and world, a place of astute learning, volumes of information dedicated to the knowledge of man, the library of Alexandria, such a treasure to be lost, and unfortunately those darn Christians burned it to the ground.
0: Yes, you guys, you guys have got a lot to answer for. How dare you bring down the Great Library of Alexandria? Um, Yeah, and and I'm I'm writing a a series of articles on my blog called the Great Myths series, and uh, so the fifth in my series is is uh, quite again quite a long article on the destruction of the Great Library of Alexandria, Um, and, and this is. If there's there's probably a myth that that kind of encapsulates all of the the themes of. Of the of the kind of bad history that a lot of atheists subscribe to, it's this one. Uh, so you know, once upon a time there was this, the the great library of Alexandria, and it was this huge repository of all the knowledge of the ancient world. But along came the Christians, and the Christians hated ancient pagan knowledge, and they uh, and so they, they they burned down the great library of Alexandria at the end of the fourth century, and thus we we lost huge amounts of of wonderful science. And if it wasn't for that, we'd all be living on. Uh, on on the moons of you know, Jupiter or something, or flying in flying cars or some crap. Um, so because they plunged us into a one thousand year dark age, as a result, yeah, you know, the Middle Ages was the result of the burning of the Great Library of Alexandria, and so Christian Christianity is bad. Um, this is a great little story, and it's one of the the classic fairy tales of of uh, of, of positivist um, Enlightenment thinking. It it's just it's largely. Complete crap. Um, so yeah, there was there was certainly a, a great library. We all we all know that, and um, and it, it most certainly was a, an enormous repository of, of of ancient learning. It would be great if just a fraction of the the material that it uh, that it contained um, survived, because you know I, I love ancient history and a whole lot of works that I would love um, to to read would, would almost certainly have been kept there, but. Christians did not come and burn it down in the fourth century. Uh, it was not the somehow the sole repository of of ancient learning in the ancient world, which is patently stupid idea anyway. Uh, it was not actually a, a particularly um, prominent centre of, of what we would call science. Uh, even even it wasn't even a, a centre of of, uh, of of ancient proto science in in particular. It was a centre of learning generally, including that. And uh, its loss did not set back the history of, of science and technology, um, by by any significant extent. So, what what was it? Well, it was it was a a temple to the nine muses. Um, what we call the Great Library of Alexandria was the book collection of the Museum, which was this temple built by the Ptolemaic kings, the successors to Alexander the Great, uh, who, who succeeded and inherited the Egyptian part of Alexander's empire and became uh, kings there for, for um, uh, several centuries. So one of the early Ptolemaic kings, either Ptolemy I Soter or Ptolemy II Philadelphus, um, founded the museum and began to collect books. The museum was not just a temple, it was uh, like many uh, temples to the muses, was a center of learning. And it was attached to the, to the royal palace in the royal quarter down on the near the, the waterfront of uh, of alexandria um it, it was almost certainly the largest library in the ancient world there's no doubt about that how big it was though that's um another question and you often read particularly in you know hysterical um versions of the destruction of the great library by christians that it, it contained half a million books or seven hundred thousand books or 700,000 scrolls, or half a million scrolls. Um, The the problem with that is that that, uh, those two numbers are two of a very wide range of of numbers given in ancient sources for the size of the library. So we've got Ammianus Marcellinus saying that there were 700,000 scrolls there, and we've got um, Ammianus Gellius saying the same thing. But then again, we've got Seneca the Younger saying it was 40,000. And then we've got of Seville running much later, saying it was 70,000. Uh, then we've got you know 490,000. We've got 400,000 in Erosius. We've got uh, 200,000 in Aristeas. The fact is, no one knew how big it was. And this is why the numbers are all over the place. It's not like we've got lower numbers in the earlier references and higher numbers in the later ones, so the library was growing over time. The numbers, some of the numbers are huge at the beginning and small at the end. It just, there's no pattern here. And so, most uh, reasonable historians on this topic say basically we have to take any of these figures with a grain of salt. What we do know is that the Great Library of Alexandria had a number of rivals around the Roman world, one of which was the Great Library of Pergamon, which was another. Uh, successor state of the of the Alexandrian Empire. and uh, the Great Library of Pergamon and the Great Library of Alexandria were kind of like rival universities to get today. They kind of um, poached each other's students and and uh, and and tried tried to sort of stifle each other. Um, so the great library of pergamon was was uh, apparently was a, was a serious rival to the Library of Alexandria. and we've got a rough idea of how big the Great Library of Pergamon was, and it's kind of in the Tens, tens of thousands of scrolls, probably about 30,000. So if it was a serious rival to the Great Library of Alexandria and it had about 30,000 scrolls, the Great Library of Alexandria couldn't have been, you know, 100 times bigger than that or more. You know, uh, it, that doesn't make sense. So it's more likely that the Great Library was maybe forty to 50,000 scrolls. Um, that's not forty to 50,000 works, by the way, because – one work could be over 30 scrolls or a single scroll could contain two or three uh, short works. So it it, it it doesn't give us an idea of how many actual texts were in it, it but it does give us a, a bit of an estimate as to how big it was. 40 to 50,000 scrolls is still huge and still makes it almost certainly the biggest library in the ancient world. But the, the other thing that I just mentioned there is that there were all these other libraries in the ancient world. And of course, we know there were hundreds of them, some of them quite large. Pergamon was... Was the one of the most famous. The Great Library of Celsus in Ephesus was another one. Uh, there was also a, an enormous library in the Forum of Trajan, which was built in the early second century, which was also substantial. So we we know um, that that one, for example, probably held because we can look at its archaeological footprint, held about twenty thousand scrolls, and that was considered an enormous library at the time. So because there are all these other libraries scattered around the ancient world, the idea that the destruction of one the Great Library of Alexandria somehow wiped out all the knowledge of the ancient world is clearly stupid. That doesn't make any sense. And there's no evidence that the stuff that was held in the Great Library of Alexandria was somehow substantially different to the stuff held in these other libraries. So, yeah, we have lost a whole lot of, in most of, the works of the ancient world. That's just the nature of, unfortunately, the nature of the passage of history um, but the idea that, that that the destruction or the end of the Great Library of Alexandria set back human knowledge, it's a neat little story, but it just doesn't make any sense. Um, what about science being done at the Great Library? Well, they were certainly doing the kind of science that the ancient Greeks did, which was, uh, I, I usually refer to it as proto-science. They called it natural philosophy. Uh, it wasn't modern science in that it wasn't consistently... Based on measurement, experiment, observation, it wasn't consistently empirical. It could be, but it wasn't always, and it didn't use the the modern scientific method. It sure as hell didn't use uh, modern methods of you know of publication, peer review, and, and 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 critique. So it was a kind it was a kind of proto science, but it was much more a kind of a branch of philosophy. So some people who talk about what was going on at the Great Library, they say they they came up with atomic theory. Well they came up with the concept of atoms which was a philosophical a uh, metaphysical concept about well what what do you get if you divide a piece of matter and keep dividing it at what point do you, do you, can you stop cutting the the uh, the piece of matter uh, there, there must be an end point or would it go on forever and so they believed that they, they, they came to believe that there was a point where whether you came to a, a, a particle that was uncuttable which is what a tomos Atoms means. Does that mean they came up with atomic theory? No, uh, they came up with a philosophical concept of an uncuttable particle. But no one walked away from that conversation and said, I, "I'm going to invent a machine to measure the atoms and to work out how they they make up the universe." Uh, the the beginning of modern atomic theory came out of chemistry in the 18th and 19th century. They took the ancient Greek word. That's the origin of the word, sure. But to pretend that people in, in the Great Library of Alexandria were sitting around discussing atomic theory in anything like the modern sense of, of the scientific word is uh, is completely ridiculous. Um, there certainly were lots of people that we know were associated with the Great Library who did scientific, what we would consider scientific work. The obvious example is Eratosthenes. He's the guy who uh, who measured. The circumference of the Earth using some some basic geometry, um, but all of these guys were polymaths. So yes, they were doing that, but they were also doing a whole lot of other stuff as well. In fact, Aristrathanes was referred to as by his uh, by his um, rivals as Beta, which means basically the letter B, second rate, because he was he ranged across so many subjects. He was reasonably good at all of them and not actually particularly good at any of them which was a rather bitchy nickname um and that's because all of these guys were doing other stuff and when we look at the list of of scholars that we know were associated with the great library or with the museum what we find is that the main thing they were doing was studying poetry not science Uh, in fact they were they were mainly devoting themselves to the works of homer and uh, to the works of, of Pindar and, and the other great, great uh, classical Greek poets and, and also to the, uh, to the, the, the drama of, uh, of the various Greek playwrights. Um, so they weren't sitting around designing flying machines. Uh, and that's because ancient Greek proto-science wasn't connected to technology in the way in which modern science is. So modern scientists, uh, I've, I've, I know some scientists who get quite, who are theoretical physicists, who get quite frustrated when people say, "Yeah, well, that's all great, but what do you do with it?" For most modern people, um, science is meant to meant to lead to technology. That's the whole point. You know, whereas in the ancient world, uh, their proto-science was much more of a branch of philosophy. There were some exceptions. There were certainly some. Uh, proto-scientists at the time who, who tinkered with machines, hero of Alexandria as one, but there wasn't the same sort of link between natural philosophy and technology that, that came about in the early modern world and then uh, gave rise, rise to the science-technology nexus that we have today. So this is why they went designing flying machines. So the idea that the, uh, that the end of the museum meant that we, we didn't get to, to fly to the, and live on the moons of Jupiter um, uh, is is fanciful as well. They weren't on the brink of some kind of scientific revolution. They sure as hell weren't on the brink of some kind of industrial or technological revolution either.
1: I'd like to remind everyone else at this point that you're listening to a deeper waters podcast, everything we do is listener-supported by people like you you know, we could really use your support. I mean, if you heard last week's show, I, I had some very painful dental surgery. I had to lose two teeth. I, I still hate thinking about it. And what you do to help us, it can really help fix that. Because we've been told I need a bridge, and that's very hard to come by when you're kind of broke. So, if you go to my page, com, there's a link on the side that says help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click in there, and you get taken to Risen Jesus. Have you gone the right place? Yes, you have. Those are my in-laws, actually, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And my mother-in-law knows finances and clergy finances especially very well, and since we're a non-profit, that helps. So, uh... You go and you click there and you make your donation. You get in touch with Mike or Debbie or me or Allie and say, hey, I made my donation. i want to go to Nick Peters. i want to go to Deeper Waters. And we will give that donation. It will be tax deductible. And uh, you can also buy ebooks that I have written, such as a Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, or Co-written, Defining Inerrancy, Groundless, God, and Natural Disasters, etc. And uh, another thing, um, damn it. Over there, down under where you're at, do women like jewelry down there?
0: Um, Most of the ones I know do, yeah.
1: Okay, we've got a jewelry store, guys. See, all around the world, women like jewelry. So you can buy something special at Lady In Your Life. Can touch them if you want some help. 25% of it will go to deeper waters. And guys, you know, the words of wisdom I always give you at this point. You can buy something special that Lady In Your Life to make up that big screw-up that you recently did with her. Or you can buy something special that late in your life to make up that big screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. <laughs> and if uh, if you can't do any of these, please uh, do simple things like, you know, share a podcast with a friend. Share it on your wall. Go on iTunes and leave a positive review. You guys have no idea how much I love to see those. Now, Tim, do you have any organization or such you'd like to see people donate to?
0: Um, mm. No, all, all of mine are are, are way too secular, mm-hmm. um, Nick, so maybe not. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Well, maybe I'll just say, like, go to Tim's blog and check out his work, and if you have a Patreon set up, go there.
0: Fair enough. I don't, actually. I'd I'm, yeah. I'm, uh, I, I fund it all myself, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when you were talking about going to the moon, such a, I remember how uh, you once commented on John Loftus's blog with, with the graph that you now have on the article about, about the stupidest thing ever on the internet.
0: <laughs> ah, the chart. Yeah, well, the chart. The chart is um uh, is something that that's um was invented by a guy called Jim West, and it's a it's a graph that um shows apparently shows the uh, the great impact that that uh, Christianity has had on on technology, and it shows how technology was rising. Exponentially until the around about the time of the supposed Great Library of Alexandria being destroyed by the wicked Christians, then there's a huge sort of um, trough, which has a label saying the Christian Dark Ages, and then it, it begins to rise again after the um, the Reformation and the uh, and the the Scientific Revolution, and uh, and this guy Jim West is arguing that. If there wasn't for that big trough, then it would have continued to rise and, of course, we would now all be living uh, living in, in some kind of technological wonderland. Um, this is nonsense, of course, as I just said. You know, The Greeks and Romans weren't actually on the brink of any kind of scientific or industrial revolution and for some quite complex economic reasons, uh, while they certainly did use mechanical power and machines and so on, they didn't have a lot of incentive to do that, mainly because they had a huge labor surplus in the form of millions of and millions of slaves, mm. and really, we don't see a, a, any great uh, harnessing of mechanical power until that uh, until that uh, that that situation changed in the early Middle Ages. For some again, some quite complicated economic and demographic reasons, and in the middle early Middle Ages, you had a, a labor deficit. And what what do you do when you, you don't have enough physical labor? You build machines, and and really, we see uh, the harnessing of of uh, particularly water power. And wind power on a massive scale. The, the Romans had used um, certainly water power, but not on the scale that we see in in the medieval period. And that was the beginning of uh, of Western harnessing of, of mechanical power and the and the invention of machines for all kinds of things. Probably should quickly though just go back a little bit, Nick, and and because I I didn't get to the the part where the great library did get destroyed. Okay. Um. But I'll, I'll I'll do it quickly. So okay. the myth is. The myth is they they turned up in the late fourth century. They burned down the Great Library because they hated knowledge. Uh, the truth is the Great Library didn't exist in the great in the late fourth century. It had ceased to exist, um, and the reason it had ceased to exist is that it had been substantially damaged by uh, Julius Caesar um, in the in the B.C.s, and had uh, 47 B.C. He uh, laid siege to Alexandria, accidentally set fire to it seems. Warehouses that housed a large proportion of the uh, the library collection. Um, it, it, it existed beyond that, though. Um, but what the end of the library was really in the uh, in the uh, third century, when um, uh, basically there, there was kind of a, a triple whammy: um, two fifteen AD, Caracalla's troops went on the rampage through Alexandria, uh, sacked the city, and seemed to have almost certainly seemed to have at least done some damage to the library. Um, then uh, not not too long afterwards two seventy two a d Aurelian stormed and burned the royal quarter where the library uh, library existed in in yet another roman civil war uh, and then Diocletian um, sacked the city in two hundred and ninety five and then it was devastated by an earthquake in uh, three hundred and sixty five and a tidal wave which um, swamped the lower portion of the city where the library was and deposited ships. On, six, on the roofs of six-story buildings well in land. So there was no great library in the 4th century AD. Where does the story of Christians burning the great library of Alexandria come from? Well, there was a daughter library in the temple of Serapis, the Serapium, which was outside of the royal quarter. It was a much smaller library, and, and the, a mob of Christians joined in the destruction of that temple in uh, in the 391. Um but the problem there is there is strong evidence that, that the library that had existed in that temple didn't exist when that when that destruction happened. And there was no burning. I don't know where this burning of the Great Library comes from, but there was no burning. Um, so was there? A, 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 did the Christians destroy the Great Library of Alexandria? No, because it, it, it had ceased to exist a century before they were in any position to be doing anything much. Uh, did they destroy the Library of the Serapium? It doesn't seem that way because Ammianus Marcellinus, writing some decades before that, talks about the library and refers to it in the past tense. So it doesn't seem that there was still a library there. Libraries were expensive to maintain and by the late 4th century AD, the the pagan temple of Serapis was in a city that was very much and had long been dominated by uh, by Christianity. And so it probably just didn't have the money to maintain the thing. So was there a destruction of the Great Library of Alexandria by Christians? No. It's a good fairy story. It just didn't happen.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one other thing I should comment on right quick also is, is about Archimedes measuring the circumference of the earth and such. I mean, but don't we all know that those ignorant Christians and everyone else back then knew the earth was flat, so why would they be measuring the circumference? <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, this is the other one of the great myths. Uh, it's the, the the myth that the, that Christianity taught that the Earth was flat. Um, so everyone, particularly Americans, are very fond of this idea. And and uh, the idea is that uh, the medieval Church suppressed the ancient Greek knowledge that the Earth was round because the ancient Greeks worked that out. Eratosthenes, who I mentioned before, um, measured the circumference of the Earth, and uh, and Aristotle and others talked about. The arguments that show that the Earth is spherical, um, but the but the fairy tale is that the Christians came along and destroyed that knowledge, suppressed it, uh, because the Bible says that the Earth is flat, and and so for again the thousand years of the Dark Ages and the medieval period, the medieval Church taught everyone that the Earth was flat, until Christopher Columbus came along and proved to them that they were wrong by sailing around the Earth, not sailing off the edge and discovering America. Now, this is a great story. The only problem with it is it's complete crap. Um, the, the medieval church did not teach that the earth was flat. The idea that Columbus discovered that the earth was round was invented by uh, Washington Irving, um, the the uh, um, uh, American – an early 19th century novelist.
1: Rip Van Winker, right?
0: That's the the man. So in 1828, Washington Irving was commissioned by his publishers to write a a fictionalized biography of Columbus, and it was meant to be released to coincide with one of the anniversaries of Columbus's voyage. Um, So Irving... Like any writer who gets given an advance by their publisher said, yes, please, I'll do that. And um, then went and started to research Columbus and found that the story wasn't very interesting. Basically, Columbus um, got some funding to go on this sort of crazy voyage, took off to discover the Indies, accidentally crashed into uh, what's now Cuba, and um, that's kind of the end. So he, he had to come up with a something to spice the story up a bit. And so what he did was he you – know, all novelists know that, that uh, fiction has to be based on conflict. He invented a conflict. So he invented this idea that the medieval church taught that the earth was flat. Um, he also invented the whole you know, Columbus sailing to prove that they were wrong. And the other thing – the other advantage this had was he was writing in a period in which the United States was vehemently anti-Catholic and and was looking for – uh, a kind of a hero, um, as part of their founding myth, because the United States had only been around for a, a few decades at that stage. Um, preferably one who wasn't English, because they were also still you know, not not terribly terribly keen on the British, and so Columbus fitted the bill because he wasn't English. But the only problem was that he was Catholic. So one of the ways that that, uh, this story sort of takes the curse off Columbus is by making him into a kind of a proto-Protestant, by having him come into conflict with the the evil old Catholic Church. So it's a great little story, and it serves several polemical purposes. It's just complete invention. People in the Middle Ages were absolutely clear that the earth was round. Uh, they, one of the works of Plato that they had, they didn't have too many of those because most of those got lost in the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, but one of them was Plato's Timaeus, and Plato there lays out a summary of the arguments that the earth was round, and people in the early Middle Ages read that and said, okay, well, that just that makes sense. And if we then look at um, writings from throughout the medieval period, early medieval, late medieval, uh, they, they constantly talk about the earth being round. And they base a lot of their calculations, a lot of their astronomy, uh, a lot of their geography on exactly this idea. For example, they had idea, the idea of the various um, uh, um, geographical zones of the, of the Earth with the equatorial zone being hot and the northern zones being the Arctic and Antarctic being cold. That doesn't make any sense unless you understand that the earth is round. So, all the evidence shows that they understood the earth was round. Some people try to argue well, yeah, learned people knew that the earth was round. The average peasant, though, wouldn't have known that. It is a little bit difficult for us to know what the average peasant knew, and there almost certainly were peasants who thought that the earth was flat because there are idiots who think that the earth is flat now. Mm So so there's no doubt that there were ignorant and stupid people back then, just as there are ignorant and stupid people now. But when we look at um, the references to the shape of the earth that we find in medieval literature, they all indicate that the idea that the earth was round was extremely well known. Uh, There's a, a, a book called The Travels of Sir John Mandeville, which was an extremely popular travel book. Uh, written in the 14th century in England, and it tells the story of a man who traveled so far into the east that he ended up coming back to his home from the west. And that only makes sense if uh, if the, if everyone understands that the earth is round. And the writer didn't even explain how that worked. He just told the story because he expected his, reader or the, his audience, who were um, you know, average unlearned people, to know how that works. We also have lots of references to the earth being round like an apple, round like a ball. We have common phrases in both English and French and German about the earth being round like an apple or round like a ball. And one of the symbols of royal authority that we find across medieval Europe is the orb. So kings are depicted wearing a crown, holding a scepter and holding an orb. And the orb represented earthly power. It represented the earth. That was a symbol they inherited from the Romans. But everyone understood that the orb represented the earth. Now, if they thought that the earth was flat, then he would have been holding a frisbee or a plate or something. Um, But the fact he's depicted holding an orb shows that everyone understood that the earth was round. So this is yet another myth, and it's tied to the myth of uh, the medieval church suppressing um, ancient uh, Greek and Roman knowledge and suppressing science, which is another one that uh, my my dear new atheist friends love and which is largely nonsense as well.
1: Yeah, you know – Maybe the Christians didn't destroy the library of Alexandria, but you know they sure weren't doing science in the EVA period at all. We don't have any record of these Christians doing science, and besides, the church would have persecuted them anyway.
0: Yeah, this is, and that's that's the claim. Uh, And of course, again, you know what I'm going to say—that's all crap. So, so there definitely was a massive decline in in uh, what we call what I call proto science or, or natural philosophy. In the early medieval period and so people point to that and they try and make an argument of correlation equals causation you know this is the period in which the church was was powerful therefore this decline must have been caused by the church unfortunately that claim collapses under even the lightest of scrutiny first problem that decline in in ancient uh, Greek it was mainly ancient Greek natural philosophy predates the rise of Christianity to any kind of political power. So what we actually find is that uh, the Romans adopted ancient Greek proto-science with some enthusiasm, but on the whole, they didn't really add to it a great deal. Now, there are some exceptions to that, but on the whole, they really kind of took it as a a corpus of, 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 uh, of accepted knowledge. And so what we find, particularly from about the first to second centuries onward, is that the Romans weren't doing much with it other than summarizing it, writing commentaries on it, some of which were quite um, useful commentaries. But they weren't really adding to it a great deal. So there was a lot of encyclopedias pulling together different ancient Greek um, scholars' ideas and, and combining them or comparing them. But there wasn't a whole lot of original work being done. Again, there are exceptions, but that that on the whole we find a a decline uh, which really accelerates in the third century and this is because the Roman Empire uh, almost fell apart in the third century. The third century is often referred to as as the period of military anarchy. And at one point, the Roman Empire split into three parts. It was under assault from barbarians who who kind of scented blood in the water and, and uh, crossed the borders. But mainly what was going on was the Romans were fighting Romans. And you had emperors rising and falling, you know, sometimes as regularly as once every six months. Uh, and, and there was absolute chaos. In this period, we see lots of evidence that – uh, that uh, things were massively disrupted. We see an economic decline, not surprising if you've got a period of nearly 60 years of almost constant civil war and barbarian invasion. Uh, we see cities that were deep inside the Roman Empire suddenly building walls, defensive walls, um, and, and maintaining them. Um, so that, so there's clear evidence that, that things declined. And one of the impacts that this had was on, on education, so we see a great decline in the literary output of the particularly the western half of the Roman Empire and the western half of the Roman Empire never really recovers from that period when it comes to its educational infrastructure and its literary output the eastern half of the empire which was the richer and stronger and more uh, intellectually uh, vigorous anyway did recover once the empire stabilized in the 4th century but in the on the in the western half we don't see the same kind of recovery of, of intellectual life. Uh, the other thing that we do see, and this is extremely important, is a massive decline in Greek literacy. So up to the about the 3rd century, the western half of the empire, even though you spoke Latin, if you were an educated person, you also learned to read and speak Greek. And this is important because all of that ancient Greek proto-science was all written in Greek. And when that, there was this decline in ancient Greek literacy in the third century, when a lot of people were the educational focus of the fourth century, switched more to the administration of the empire and the administration of the army. Um, what you what you found is that we get far fewer copies of these ancient Greek proto-scientific works because no one fewer people could read them, and so that's where the decline in uh, in um, proto-science in the West of of the Roman Empire and therefore Western Europe came from. It didn't come from Christianity. Then in the fifth century the Western Roman Empire collapsed completely. And so what had been a fairly steady decline in educational standards and literary output and literacy in Greek um, became a it fell off a cliff. It became a catastrophic collapse. And then we get several centuries in which the western half of what had been the Roman Empire is uh, is in turmoil. There's an economic collapse. There's a demographic collapse in the early sixth century due to uh, a massive uh, outbreak epidemic of bubonic plague. Um, there's a uh, there, were, there were climate change uh, issues, and um, and then Western Europe is attacked literally from all sides from uh, what, what the, the Romans had referred to as barbarians. So you get uh, various Germanic barbarians attacking from the east and the north. Uh, you get uh, my ancestors, the Irish, attacking from the north and the west. And then you get eventually in the 7th century, the, uh, um, um, the Muslim world expanding up into – across North Africa and then up into Spain as, as far as southern France. Um, they were attacked from all sides. It took centuries for them to recover. From the, these this triple whammy of 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 economic, um, demographic and, uh, and 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 political collapse, it wasn't until around about the 11th late 11th century that Western Europe began to recover economically, thanks to the the invention of those. Um, uh, those machines I was talking about, and the harnessing of of uh, new agrarian technology, which massively increased output of, on farms. Uh, there was a a minor warming period in in terms of climate, uh, which which increased the population again, and people started to think again about, well, let, let's let's go and find these books that we've lost. They knew they'd lost them. But it wasn't that the church was suppressing ancient Greek and Roman knowledge. They loved that stuff. They'd already decided that this, this that even though it was pagan, so-called pagan knowledge, that it was a gift from God. They called it the gold of the Egyptians, just as the Israelites carried off the gold of the pharaohs and turned it to their own sacred usage. This was the argument. We should carry off this learning from the ancient Greeks because it's a gift given to the Greeks and therefore to us from God. So they didn't suppress it. They loved it. The problem was they'd lost a lot of it, and so they referred to it what they were called the penuria latinorum or the the poverty of the Latins. They knew that there were other people out there, particularly the Greek Empire, the bit that didn't collapse, the the Byzantine or the Eastern Roman Empire, and the and the Arab world that still had these works. So they went looking for them, and and what we find is the the an enormous movement, uh, an intellectual movement in the late. Eleventh uh, and certainly the twelfth century, which is often referred to as the twelfth-century Renaissance, where scholars from from medieval scholars from Western Europe, all of them clergy, went to places like Sicily, Spain, and uh, and the Eastern Roman Empire, and taught themselves Greek, taught themselves Arabic, and taught themselves Hebrew, and used uh, the the translations of these lost ancient Greek works in the into those languages, translated them into Latin, and brought them back into Europe. And so what we then find from the 12th uh, right through to the 16th century is this blossoming of, uh, of understanding of ancient Greek knowledge, which revolutionized the, the medieval world and eventually gave rise to, uh, to the scientific revolution.
1: Well, good luck, though, naming us someone who was doing science in that period, though. I'm, I'm sure you can't think of anyone –
0: yeah okay. <laughs> Leading questions, yes, I can I can think of quite a few. Um, well, the thing is if you if you look at the early medieval period, you won't find too many people doing anything like what we would call science. and that's because it was uh, it, as I said, most of that knowledge was, was substantially lost. also because um, the uh, the people in that period kind of had one or two other things to think about. Uh, when, you, when you're being attacked by Vikings one day, Irish barbarians the next, and maybe the Magyars the day after, uh, it, it's a bit difficult to concentrate on maybe on making uh, copies of, of Aristotle. But there, there really was a, a flowering. Once that they recovered, there was a flowering of, of, uh, of, of what we would call science. And so we've got a whole range of people who are doing some very interesting stuff um, Albertus Magnus, Robert Grosstester, uh, Roger Bacon, John Peckham, Dun Scotius, Thomas Bradwardine, Bo- Walter Burley, William Hatesbury, Richard Swineshead, John Dumbleton, Richard Wallingford, Nicholas Resmi, jean Buridan, Nicholas Accusa. You know, none of these guys were burnt at the stake. But if you look at some of the stuff that these guys were saying, it, it's really quite interesting. Um, there's a guy called William of Conches who was writing way back in the – very early on in the in the early 12th century. And, and he was quite scornful of people who said um, we shouldn't pay any attention to uh, what we would call science, you know, examining the physical world because, because you just have to say God – God did it, right? And he, his argument was, well, yeah, God can do anything. You know, God could turn a cow into a tree or a tree into a cow. But does that mean that's what happened? Let's look at the physical world and use our brains, use reason to work out what was going on. Um, so it, this was, is this was in the middle of the so-called dark ages. Um, he he looked at, for example, he looked at uh, the, the book of Genesis where we were talking about it before where it, it says that God, Created Adam out of dust. And he said, Well, okay, but what does that mean? Does that mean God literally picked up a handful of dust and created Adam? And he said, No, this is a figurative story. He's writing in the 12th century, right? This is a figurative story. And then he began to talk about, Well, how could man arise out of dust? Maybe dust, through the action of heat and water, could give rise to simple forms of life, which in turn could, could give rise to more complex forms and eventually give rise to something as complex as a human being. This is in the so-called Dark Ages. He's talking about evolution. I mean, obviously, he didn't come up with a mechanism, and it's purely speculative. But what he's saying is it would be possible for this to happen through natural means, guided by God but it would be possible for this to happen. Um, was he burnt at the stake? No. Well, he was regarded as one of the, the greatest thinkers of his time. If we look at, at Robert Grostest, for example, he was very interested in light. Uh, all these guys were very interested in light. And they studied optics, um, and they were very interested in, in the action of lenses and so on. But he was interested in how light travels, and he was imagining, well, maybe the universe began when a ball of light exploded outwards and then as it cooled it gave rise to the the, the the spheres of the planets and then eventually gave rise to the, the sphere of the stars. He was obviously working in an ancient Greek style Ptolemaic conception of the universe but he's talking about a version of the Big Bang <laughs> and and actually his stuff was actually quite sophisticated and there's been a recent study done on his work that that sort of shows that he was thinking quite mathematically. When he was when he was talking about this stuff, it wasn't just you know just sitting around saying well maybe this happened. Uh, this again was in the Middle Ages. No one in the medieval period was burned at the stake, imprisoned, or oppressed for uh, examining the physical world through reason. No one, and this is because they believed in the concept of what they call the two books. There was the book of God and that was the Bible and the works of the Church Fathers, so that was Revelation, you know, the works of, of, of the prophets and so on. And then there was the Book of Nature, and they believed these two books were, were, were telling the same story. So they believed that you should look at nature and you should use your God-given reason, because God is a rational God and the world is, 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 is apprehensible using reason to understand the Book of Nature and see how it complements the Book of God. That was what they believed. So yep. the idea that in, in the Middle Ages that, that people couldn't do that, there, there was no there was no real conflict between what these guys were doing when they were examining, you know, uh, impetus, physics, optics, inventing eyeglasses in the in the process. By the way, um, uh, coming up with with the beginnings of a lot of our, our, our beginnings of science, there was no conflict between that and uh, and and theology, because the theology was this stuff is all part of the rational mind of God. Therefore, apprehend it rationally. This is why the the idea that that the church hated this stuff is absolute nonsense.
1: No one burned at the stake or in prison. Hello, Galileo, Bruno, what about those two?
0: Okay. All right. Well, these are the ones that, that always get brought up because this is where the whole myth of scientists being burned at the stake comes from. So one is Giordano Bruno. So the Idea is that Giordano Bruno, who was a late fifteenth, uh, early sixteenth century, um, we could call him a philosopher, uh, was a scientist, and he believed that that there were multiple worlds, and that uh, and that, that the sun was just one of many suns, and the earth goes around the sun. He believed in uh, the Copernican uh, image of the universe, or so the model of of, of the cosmos. And he was therefore burnt at the stake for his scientific beliefs by the Catholic Church. Now, Giordano Bruno was burnt by the Catholic Church in uh, in the Campo del Fiore in in Rome in uh, February uh, 1599. That bit is true. Uh, Giordano Bruno was was not a scientist. Uh, if you actually read his works, it's perfectly clear. This guy was a mystic, and uh, he, he he certainly believed a whole grab bag of of ideas that he kind of mixed into his mystical melange of, of ideas, some of which were scientific, including uh, the idea of, of uh, Copernicus's model. But he, he he was not in any sense an astronomer. Uh, in fact, when you read what he writes about Copernicus's model, he didn't understand it. He gets basic things wrong um, and really fundamental things wrong. So was he a scientist? Well, the, the, the actual scientists of the time – People like uh, uh, Johannes Kepler or Galileo um, did not regard him as a scientist, and he was not doing the kind of science that they were doing. He wasn't doing science at all. In fact, he scorned the idea of using mathematics and measurement uh, for cosmology and and believed that using mystical insight and intuition – was was the the way to do it so he actually put scorn on Copernicus for limiting himself to to mathematics. So the idea that this guy was some kind of scientist is absolute nonsense. One point when Copernic when Kepler was writing to uh, Galileo he compared one of Galileo's uh, arguments to that of Bruno and that was not meant to be a compliment that was meant to be an insult well a, a bit of a, a bit of a subtle dig anyway. Um, so they didn't regard him as a scientist and they didn't write about him, uh, right to him. He wasn't part of their, their network of correspondence. Um, and when they, they commented on him, they commented on him being a bit of a, a bit of a kook. Uh, when he was executed, Kepler said, thank God that monster is dead. Right? This, is, this is Kepler, the actual scientist. Um, so he, he didn't believe in, the, in these scientific ideas because he was a scientist. He believed in these scientific ideas because some of them fitted his mystical conception. So I, I, I use the analogy of he, he wasn't a scientist. He was a bit like uh, Deepak Chopra or one of those New Ager guys who talk about um, relativity or quantum mechanics, not because they actually understand it or because they're in any way scientifically literate, but because it's it's a, it's kind of cool to mix that stuff in and make their make their their mystical nonsense sound sound a little bit more credible. Um, Bruno was a bit like that. The idea of multiple worlds, though, is something people often say, you know, he came up with that. He didn't. He tells us he didn't. He got that from a guy he calls the Divine Cusanus. The Divine Cusanus is a fellow I just mentioned, Nicholas of Cusa. He came up with uh, or developed an idea of multiple worlds, including the idea of aliens living on on, on, um, ancient uh, alien worlds, and uh, he was not burned at the stake either because he was a, well he became a cardinal of the catholic church and a papal legate and papal nuncio the so second only to the pope no one cared no one cared because it was an interesting idea and people in this period were actually quite open to interesting ideas. Bruno got burned to the stake because Bruno believed in, not just in these things, but in a whole lot of other stuff, uh, including that Jesus was a magician and a fraud, that the Virgin Mary wasn't a virgin, and that transubstantiation in the Catholic Mass was uh, was fake. Um, now, you and I might agree with him on some or all of those, but that kind of stuff got you in trouble in, uh, in Catholic Europe in the late, uh, the late 16th century, and that's why he was burned at the stake. Um, it, it seems that his belief in multiple worlds was part of the reason he got burned, but it wasn't um, the, the primary reason, and his belief in heliocentrism definitely wasn't uh, the reason he was burned at the stake, because we know that, because the same guy who tried um, Giordano Bruno a guy, uh, guy called Cardinal Bellamine, um, was the guy who tri- tried, uh, G- uh, tried uh, Galileo uh, about 17 years later. And if he had condemned Bruno for heliocentrism, he, there wouldn't have need to be an investigation into the heliocentrism um, beliefs of Galileo. They would have used the case law, the precedent, of the previous trial, the fact that they didn't means that that wasn't actually part of the trial of Bruno. We have to guess what the um, charges against Bruno were, by the way, because the documents have been lost. Um, Napoleon stole them in the early 19th century, and when when they were given back, those uh, a whole lot of them were missing, including those ones. So Bruno was not a scientist. He was not burned at the stake for science, and he was, uh, and and uh, he he's not some kind of martyr for science, despite what people try and claim. Which brings us to Galileo, I suppose. Mm-hmm. All right, so the problem with the Galileo story is, I mean, yes, Galileo definitely was uh, oppressed for his scientific beliefs. There's no doubt about that. The problem is that was exceptional. Uh, it was highly unusual. And And what people do is they kind of say, well, what about Galileo? And then they try and project that back onto the previous 1,000 years. This was really the first time anyone – had gotten into some kind of theological trouble over scientific ideas. And it was exceptional because the situation was exceptional. First of all, we're talking about a period after the Reformation where suddenly the, well, for the first time the Catholic Church was extremely jumpy about anyone interpreting the Bible Without uh, appropriate theological training. So the Council of Trent, which was held um, several decades before Galileo's first trial, um, ruled that no one should, in, no Catholic, should interpret the Bible unless they had the appropriate uh, theological training. It was to be left purely to um, experts. In theology because they saw what was happening in Protestant Europe where basically Protestant Europe was kind of tearing itself apart over biblical um, interpretations and they were trying to avoid that uh, so the problem was Galileo well, wasn 't that Galileo was saying uh, radical stuff about about the the universe um, in fact for most of the period before his first trial in sixteen sixteen the Catholic Church um, uh, celebrated his discoveries. They they were, they took him to Rome. He met with the Pope. He met with several leading cardinals. They held a huge feast. To the Jesuit order held a huge feast in his honour. Gave him an honorary doctorate. They loved him, and they didn't really care that he believed in Copernicus's theory, um, because well they just didn't care. I mean he wrote a book on sunspots that made it absolutely clear that he believed in in Copernicus's model. And that was looked at by the Inquisition who, you know, in, in this period censored all books. There was a lot of control of information in this period anywhere in Europe. And th- they looked at that and they just they didn't, didn't even blink. They, they said, I'll take out this reference to the Bible in this other part. But they didn't, didn't care about that. The problem was he started to talk very publicly in a series of widely circulated letters about how the Bible could be reconciled with the Copernican model, and they didn't care about the science, they cared about the theology. And that's that's what got him into hot water. Um, there was some political stuff going on as well, which I, uh, is complicated, which I won't go into, but ultimately that was what got him in front of the Inquisition. Then the Inquisition said, okay, let's look at this theory that he's trying to reconcile with theology. Is it scientifically valid? And so they put that out to the experts. They basically said, give us a report on uh, on how scientifically valid this idea of, of the Copernican model is. And the report came back saying, directly, the overwhelming majority of scientists, of actual you know, astronomers, reject this this concept. And that was true in 1616. Now, we find that weird, but in 1616, there were still major scientific problems with the Copernican model, Um not surprisingly, because the Copernican model is wrong. It, it's right about the Earth uh, not being at the centre and the Sun being at the centre, and it's right about the Earth revolving. It's wrong about everything else, and it's this huge mathematical mess of circular orbits and, and complex epicycles and deference and so on. It just it doesn't make any sense as physics, as as a mathematical model. It worked. But as physics, it was just absolute gibberish. It also contradicted everything that they knew about Greek physics. And so the scientists of the time rejected it. So a study of uh, the scientific writing on the subject up until 1616, so the eve of Galileo's trial, uh, found that only 11 people in the whole of Europe accepted Copernican model as uh, as a physical model of the universe rather than as a calculating device. Now that changed later, but the point is it changed later. So it changed after Kepler and Newton were able to bring it come together. Uh, you know, so Newton took Kepler's three laws of planetary motion, put it together with his laws of of, uh, of dynamics, and and came up with a good model that actually worked physically using elliptical orbits. That's when really, when the, the, the actual tide of consensus began to turn, but that was about 90 years later. So at the time of Galileo's trial, and this is the bit that people need to understand, the Catholic Church had the science of the day on its side, and Galileo was the one uh, who, was, who was peddling a, a fringe theory that most scientists thought was wrong. So what the Inquisition said was, well, okay, your theory is absurd in philosophy, that means scientifically wrong and contrary to the Bible, remember about the book of nature and the book of God, so they, they brought the two together and said, well, it contradicts the book of God and it contradicts the book of nature. Therefore, this is formally heretical. You can't teach that anymore. But that was it. They then slapped him on the wrist said, you can't teach that as a fact anymore. Off you go. Do whatever you like as far as, a, you know, as a, exploring it as a hypothesis. He then wrote a book. With the permission of the Pope, he wrote a book exploring the Copernican model versus the Ptolemaic model. And the Pope said, yeah, please write this book. He was invited by the Pope to write this book. He wrote this book, uh, which was meant to be a kind of a – a balanced view. He clearly made it absolutely clear that he uh, that he preferred the, the Copernican model. He also put some of the arguments against the Copernican model in the mouth of a guy called Simplicius, which means the fool, and the arguments that he gave to this character were arguments that had been used by the Pope. So that was kind of offensive. That's what got him into real trouble, and, and that was the reason for his his second trial and, uh, and his house arrest. So the story is much more complicated than the, what we're usually told. That the church hated science, mm-hmm. and the church, and the church was wrong, and Galileo was right. Galileo was mainly wrong. Actually, he was using arguments that were just crap, and could be shown to be crap at the time. He, he thought that the the tides were caused by the rotation of the Earth, which is completely wrong, and it was based on some premises that people at the time pointed out to him were wrong. Galileo was a, uh, let's say, he, he was a difficult personality, um, very stubborn. And, uh, and and not good at admitting that he would ever made a mistake. Extremely arrogant and highly abrasive. Not that that excuses anything, you know. And we look at Galileo being put under house arrest for for believing in, in something in science, and we find that appalling. And of course we find it appalling. But in the 17th century, that's how things worked. And and it wasn't that they hated science. It was that they'd looked at the science and said this. Doesn't make sense. It doesn't. It doesn't uh, make sense scientifically. It doesn't make sense theologically. Therefore, you need to shut up. That, that's what happened.
1: Well, Tim, we've uh, gone a little bit beyond our time here, but I'm sure that's okay. Here, um, you have a blog, website, and email where people can get in touch if they want to find out more.
0: Sure. Um, well, so the blog is history for atheists or one word mm. dot com. Uh, there is a contact the author link at the top of each page. Uh, there is a about the author of an FAQ that um, I would encourage people to read because that that will will answer a number of people's questions and head off a number of of assumptions. And uh, there's yeah you know, I, I I try and update it at least once a month. Um, I'm doing a, a series of articles on Jesus mythicism, which is progressing quite slowly, but mm-hmm. I'm also doing that series of articles on the great myths. And then every now and then I'll I'll do a a, a comment on uh, some particularly stupid things that. Uh, some of our new atheists, my new atheist friends have said recently. Mm. So I recently did one on Sam Harris, which um, attracted a lot of attention. Mm. So, yeah, feel free to go and have a look. And uh, But if anyone tells you that I'm not an atheist, if anyone tells you that I'm actually a Christian, so please tell them to shut up. Mm. You'll you're you're, you're listen to the Christians, um, so they're probably a bit polite. Just tell them they're wrong. Mm.
1: And do you have any fine words you like to leave today for the Deeper Partners audience?
0: Uh, no, all, all, I, all I would say is um, uh, that that don't don't hesitate in telling atheists that they're wrong about this sort of stuff. But you know, obviously, as an atheist, be open-minded mm-hmm. about yeah. our position. Mm-hmm. We're not all idiot. We're not all idiots. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. some of us are, are. We're not all obnoxious. Some of us are very nice people. Myself included.
1: I'd say the same about about my own tribe. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's human beings,
1: I think. Yep. Yeah. 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 Yeah, there are jerks and idiots in every field.
0: <laughs> That's the problem.
1: Well, I'd like to thank you for coming on. I hope we will see you back here again sometime.
0: No problem. Thanks, Nick.
1: I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Ross Hickling on talking about Richard Carrier and the Resurrection. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.